Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seely, GIA's Programs Manager. Today we continue with our Arts Advocacy Online Learning Series, and we're joined by Eddie Torres, Grantmakers in the Arts President and CEO, Jessica Mealy, Program Officer in Performing Arts at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and Sam Massell, Director of Advocacy and Engagement at the Center for Arts Education. They take a deep dive into arts education through discussion about what funders can do to support their grantees through the lens of the funder advocate and organization advocate. Welcome, Eddie. Welcome, Jessica. And welcome, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Eddie, for all of our listeners, can you give us some context around what is happening at Capitol Hill and zero in on what we should be concerned about? Thank you, Sherilyn. We've seen how advocacy saved us from this federal administration's proposed elimination of the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, in addition to their proposal to severely rescind support for the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The cultural community's advocacy efforts have had a positive impact on public sector funding on the federal level. We're seeing risks to public services in the proposed tax overhaul through the caps on deductions to state and local taxes. Furthermore, we know that the Every Student Succeeds Act plans are rolling out in states, which poses a unique advocacy opportunity for funders. In light of all this, we'd like to discuss your own advocacy efforts and useful strategies that funders can learn from. Jessica, can you give us the arc of your career and how you came to arts education and arts education advocacy? Sure. Early in my career, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I just by happenstance ended up working for Marshall Gantz, who teaches grassroots organizing and public narrative at Harvard's Kennedy School. And Marshall had a long history in the farm workers, a career in California electoral politics. And then when I worked for him, he was leading a project with the Sierra Club. And they were at a point where they were realizing that they had spent about 20 years investing in lobbying at the top. And that's how they were doing advocacy for a really long time. And they had neglected their grassroots. And they had this network of leaders at the local level, their executive committees, that they they had never really or they hadn't for quite some time mobilized for uh, national advocacy causes. And so we were helping them re-energize that group, assess the leadership capacity of that group, and figure out how to mobilize their grassroots again after some time of, of focusing on lobbyists in Capitol Hill. And while I was working for Marshall, I was also an organizer myself for the Harvard Union of Clerical and Technical Workers. I was doing my master's at the Ed School at Harvard in policy and management. And then when all that was over, <laughs> I moved to California because I just needed a change. And I decided that arts education was where my heart was. My mom was an educator and a dancer and an early childhood storyteller. And that's kind of where my most meaningful learning experiences happened were with my mom or in creative environments. So I got a job at Performing Arts Workshop, which is a 50-year-old arts education organization in San Francisco. And over time, I was there for nine and a half years, more and more of my time was taken up with local and state advocacy for arts education because we realized that if we really wanted to fulfill our mission of helping young people develop critical thinking, creative expression, and essential learning skills through the arts, we needed to change institutions because we could have the best program model in the world, but we were still working with the same educational um, 
bureaucracies that everyone else was working with. So we started focusing more of our time on advocacy. And in 2015, I started at Hewlett. And at Hewlett, I oversee a portion of our portfolio, which is we call arts education, advocacy, and policy. And that was kind of my favorite part of my job when I was at Performing Arts Workshop. And now I get to do it in a broader scope at Hewlett. So that's been really fun. So I'm going to ask my next question uh, of you, Sam. Um, Sam, can you give us the arc of your career and how you came into arts education and arts education advocacy? Sure. It's sort of a coming together of, of the circle as an arts educator right out of college. I was a political science theater major and I couldn't get a job in poli sci, but I could get a job in arts education. So I ended up working for David Dick at the Metropolitan Opera Guild as a program assistant. And I was able there actually to organize or be part of a team that was sort of putting together the first face-to-face roundtable where they announced the Center for Arts Education. And back then, I just remember thinking, wow, this is such a great opportunity. This is such a great thing. But I moved on with my career. I ended up working in the South Bronx as an arts educator with uh, St. Anne's Literacy Launch on Brook Avenue. And I then left arts education altogether to get into the high-paying career of community organizing, where I ended up working for organizations like Habitat for Humanity and Common Cause New York, where I became associate director. I then left Common Cause and formed my own organization called Bridge Roots, which was focused on developing leadership among communities of color in New York State. The idea was that communities of color were not being represented properly at the leadership table and that there needed to be a stronger voice for communities of color north of Poughkeepsie. I think when we think of New York State and communities, we don't necessarily think about the African-American communities in Albany or Troy or the Latinx communities in uh, Amsterdam, New York, for example. So Bridgewood was created very much to try to enfranchise those groups and to build up those groups around good government issues. Unfortunately, that didn't really pan out, but there was an opening at the Center for Arts Education, which to me was the coming together of the circle. It was like a fulfillment of what I had wanted to do at the very beginning of my career. So I joke that I call it Hakuma Matata, the circle of life, where you know the beginning kind of wraps itself up into this wonderful position where I'm able to now use my experience as an organizer, my experience working in Albany, my experience working um, with communities and working with policymakers to affect the change around arts education programming here in New York. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Sam. Now, uh, Jessica, my next question is for you. Given your knowledge of the Every Student Succeeds Act and arts education funding from the federal level, coupled with your work as a program officer in the arts for a private foundation, how would you advise funders to strategize and support arts education advocacy efforts? We just recently here at Hewlett completed an evaluation of the last 10 years of our funding in this area. So I have some hot off the presses information to share in response to this question. Our biggest question was what did really we learn and what advice would we give to ourselves in looking forward around the issue of arts education advocacy. So there were a couple of key takeaways from the evaluation and they will illustrate what we did over the last 10 years. So the the first big takeaway was to allow for opportunism. We went into this work knowing that there were disparities in arts education access in California's K-12 public schools. We had done a big research project about that, but we didn't quite know how to get our arms around a problem as big as public education in California. 
So we started funding grantees at multiple levels within the system, at the state level, the California Alliance for Arts Education, the PTA, the uh, membership organization for county superintendents of education, at the regional level, county offices of education, and at the local level. And not knowing what would pan out, (laughs) not knowing um, which policy windows would open over that time. So we were funding simultaneously at these multiple levels. And at the same time, at the national level, our goal was California, but we were supporting Americans for the Arts in their advocacy activity. We were supporting GIA in their advocacy work at at the federal level. And so when policy windows opened at those levels, and ESSA was a really big one, a window that opened at the federal level and and that will play out at the state and local level, uh, we were ready. Our grantees were ready. They had built an ecosystem that could take advantage of those windows and pull levers at different levels. So allow for opportunism, fund simultaneously at multiple levels, and the kind of the third key for success, which was a secret that no one really thought was a strategy but ended up being a strategy, was grantee collaboration. So we convened these grantees over the last 10 years, one to two times a year, and they got to know each other, and they got to like each other, and they trusted each other. And Joe Landon at the California Alliance for Arts Education got to know Narek Rome at Americans for the Arts, and they were able to cross-pollinate ideas from different states to California, from California to different states, and then down the chain within California. And that has reinforced a lot of the work that our grantees were doing independently by giving giving them collaboration partners where they could amplify their work. So those were the kind of big takeaways from the evaluation. It allowed this ecosystem that was very versatile to flower. And now we live in a world where ESSA is focused on individual school performance and assessment. In California, we have the local control funding formula, which is focused on district performance and assessment and funding. Uh, And we have an election in the fall that's going to determine the fate of the local control funding formula. We have a gubernatorial election in California. And it's really unclear how these different, again, we're in a moment where we don't know where the policy windows are going to be. We have a landscape of a lot of unknowns, but our grantees have built the infrastructure at the local level and at the state level and at the federal level to be able to take advantage of whatever is on the horizon after November. So that's been really exciting. So that's one example of how being opportunistic, funding simultaneously at multiple levels and promoting grantee collaboration has both helped us in the past and will help us in the future. That's so smart. That's fantastic. Sam, my next question is for you. Can you tell us about a time when your advocacy efforts proved to be successful. Do you believe funders might be able to replicate the keys to success, as it were, of that project with their grantees? Yeah, so my predecessor was able to build a coalition around getting $23 million a year dedicated towards education funding in 2014. Uh, that funding really did a great job of hiring new teachers, expanding program work, and it's been a overall success and many council members, their elected officials, see it for that success to the point where that $23 million this year was baselined into the operating budget of DOE. However, my role at CAE is very much now to rebuild that coalition and get additional funding. We're looking at not this year of uh, FY19, but for FY20, making uh, an ask of maybe up to $30 million more dedicated towards education programming. And I think the role funders can play in that is to be more supportive of advocacy departments and the um, 
the policy work that needs to go into that. In other words, you know, don't just fund the organizer, but also support the research, you know, the C3 lobbying that needs to happen, the overall vision. Our coalition is very much focused at building bridges between community-based organizations that may not traditionally have been advocating for this sort of policy change or budget increase. And we're reaching out to them in a way that um, strengthens their voice and allows them to really represent their perspective at City Hall. And I think that good efforts to engage elected officials and educate them on your uh, organizational mission or the vision of the coalition is, is very, very important. And I think uh, a lot of funders can be uh, a little intimidated by that. Can I chime in on that? Please. Sure. Um, one way that here at Hewlett, we've tried to support both our grantees and our peer funders understanding of allowable advocacy activities for 501c3s is that we've supported a partnership with the Alliance for Justice. We've supported workshops for our grantees. This past spring, we actually opened up the workshop for anyone working in the arts and culture sector who was a 501c3 who wanted to learn about lobbying limits. And in California, ballot initiative activity limits are a big issue here because we felt like educating grantees would also help educate the other funders who support them. And we have some peer funders who we've jointly presented Alliance for Justice advocacy workshops for 501c3 nonprofits. It's a great resource, and they also have a hotline for those who can't go to a workshop to help them figure out what questions they should be asking and how they should be answering them with regard to their advocacy activity. That's fantastic, Jessica. That's great because what we've found time and again is that a lot of nonprofits are anxious about lobbying issues and anxious about where the overlap between lobbying and advocacy happens. And what we've found is that it's actually very hard to pass the allowable threshold of lobbying activity. Most people think it's a terribly slippery slope, but in fact, you would need to do a fairly substantial amount of lobbying before you actually engendered any kind of concerns on the part of the IRS. And it's very, very helpful when our funders are aware of that and share that knowledge with their grantees and share that you know enhanced capacity with their grantees. Yeah. It's fantastic to hear you say that. I think one thing I was really surprised about in our last workshop is only one organization out of something like 30 present had done a 501H election. Mm. And there was a lot of fear in the room among organizations that if they did a 501H election, it would somehow make them a target or it would endanger them mm-hmm. for, for reprisal from the IRS. And, and the opposite is true. It's actually a protective measure to do a 501H election as a 501c3, as long as you have the financial capacity to track the resources and the time that are, that are going to your lobbying activities. It's, it's a protective measure that you can take so that you, you know where you stand with regard to your advocacy work. It's fantastic. And and hearing you both speak about this work, um, uh, it seems that a couple of motifs emerge. One is working at more than one scale at the same time. You know, so Jessica, you talked about making sure that you're growing advocacy capacity at the local scale, at the state scale, and the federal scale. And you're also, Sam, talking about making sure that you grow advocacy capacity on the part of 
large institutions, medium-sized organizations, and small organizations. And for both of you, you're talking about planning for unexpected opportunities and how important it is, one, that you be flexible so that you're able to be responsive to those unexpected opportunities, and also that funders fund with enough wiggle room so that you are able to use the resources you've been given in a responsive and flexible manner. Absolutely. I think it's very important to sort of be not only flexible, but also be as nimble and responsive as possible. And to have as large a variety of organizations within your coalition, large and small, engage. I think it's essential. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Now, Jessica, let me ask you, what advocacy projects or initiatives have you funded that have proven to be successful? And what do you think made them successful? Yeah, I have a couple that I can highlight from that evaluation report. I should add on that point, we were just discussing that we fund most of our grantees with multi-year general operating support. And that flexibility allows them more flexibility with their advocacy activities. So that's kind of one strategy that we use to support our grantees in their advocacy work by funding them with general operating support. We're not telling them what to do, but they have a little bit of flexibility with how they use those dollars. And when I was a grantee, that was huge for us. So there are a couple of highlights that I could give you, and I'm going to pick one. What we learned from the evaluation is there were two big advocacy wins that were led by our grantees, and then there were two opportunities that they were ready to take advantage of as a result of our support. So the two that they were ready to take advantage of, I already named to you. They didn't make ESSA happen, and they didn't make LCFF happen, but when those policy initiatives moved, they were able to take advantage of them. What some of our grantees really did move the needle on was the allowance of Title I funds for arts education programming or purposes at the district or school level. And it really started with Joe Landon, the executive director of the California Alliance for Arts Education, asking an awful lot of questions. <laughs> he was hearing from folks at the at districts in the state that they were not allowed to use Title I funds for arts education. And there was nothing in the Title I legislation. So Title I is one of the largest sources of federal funding for education that goes to states and then districts and schools in the country. And it is an anti-poverty program. And the statute says that you can use these funds for programs that you can prove meet the goals of the Title I program, those anti-poverty goals. So Joe, in his conversations with education officials, was showing research on arts education, that there is some research that arts education interventions have an impact on kids in poverty that, that meet the goals of the Title I program. And he went to the State Department of Education and got a letter from the California Superintendent of Instruction to distribute out to all of the districts saying that, yes, you can use Title I funds for arts education purposes. Nothing really moved. He went to the Federal Department of Education, this was during the Obama administration, and got a letter from the Secretary of Education at the time, and Arnie Duncan, and that letter said the same thing. You can use Title I funds for arts education purposes, and nothing 
really changed. <laughs> so things started to move a little bit, but what really changed was when Joe went on the road, he worked with Narek Rome at Americans for the Arts to disseminate information about these Title I letters and to break down this culture that was a fear of reprisal culture within the education system at multiple levels. Someone's going to take our Title I funds away if we misuse them and we think that arts education is them. That was kind of the mentality. And it was as a result of the collaboration that Joe and Eric had done to get to know each other in our grantee convenings that they built that relationship so they could create a plan for disseminating information about Title I. And they were also able to work with another grantee of ours, the Arts Education Partnership, to make accessible research on arts education and Title I that would reinforce the ability of schools and districts to use Title I funds for arts education purposes. So now, many years later, we have several examples, but one uh, really pressing one is the San Diego Unified School District is using Title I funds to rebuild an arts education program that was dismantled 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, it's been a, a great turnaround story, and they were able to do it because the California Alliance advised them on how to do it, because they pointed them to the arts education partnerships um, research and uh, and now we have an awful lot of arts education for kids in San Diego Unified that was not there 10 or 15 years ago. So that's one example. That's great. Um, Sam, you've already begun to allude to this more broadly, but I'm wondering if you can uh, go into a little bit more specific examples. You know, given your history and expertise with advocacy, what grant strategies continue to be consistently instrumental in nonprofit organizations achieving success in their arts education advocacy efforts? And can you talk about why? Well, I think it's important to, again, have a vision about what you want this policy change to look at. I think both the organization and funders need to sit down together and, and be both realistic about what's doable, but then also be aspirational in that goal, right? Because again, things can move on the drop of a dime. And we're very much looking at the fact that we need support from funders who can understand that you know we may need to mobilize coalition members and, and activists within a very brief amount of time. But then also sometimes due to reasons beyond our control, our initiatives may take a little longer than we had originally thought they would. You know, sometimes the political winds sort of blow against us. <laughs> so I think that is something to sort of take into account, but also we have been, again, very lucky in the sense that foundations have been very supportive of the work that CAE has been doing, especially around our arts education map that we are putting together, around our efforts to build this coalition, around increased funding for dedicated arts education funding. We're also looking at the fact that a lot of the foundations that we've worked with so far are looking at this from a very broad view. They're looking at it and sort of seeing a broad vision of change and working with us to sort of figure out both tactically and strategically, how do we get to that place? So it's, it's a question of being able to be both responsive and flexible, but then at the same time, share and, and be open and honest about what is realistic and doable in executing both the tactical and strategic goals. 
And Sam, you spoke earlier about something that I wanted to give you a chance to talk about some more. You'd made reference um, in terms of, you'd made reference to shifting your approach out of a grass tops style to more democratic organizing mm -hmm. focused on community self-determination. Um, also an emphasis on cultural resilience. Would you like to talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. So I think that's one of the strengths of how we're moving forward with our coalition is the fact that we had success in the past or working is with more institution groups. But now with our engagement, we're looking at smaller community organizations. We're looking at non-traditional partners uh, and we're looking to really engage folks where they're at. We're looking to really develop a more democratic organizing process when we're engaging folks. We came from a very ivory tower sort of a position where we were very policy driven and we were very, um, so had an approach of that of a funder as someone who really kind of came to the communities with information as opposed to what we're trying to do now where we go to communities and we really try to engage with them where they're at and for them to tell us not what we want them to say, but what they really need and what they really see as the opportunities for change at their level and then working with them to build up their capacity so that we can engage with them at different at different levels, whether it's at the community-based level, whether it's at the policy change level, to make sure that we're successful. We want to build long-term sustainable relationships with our community-based partners. And the best way, I think, to do that is to really treat them like any relationship where it's you know, coming at a, at a place of equality, at a place of respect, at a place where you're listening and you're really engaging with what the community and the community-based partners really need and want. And then building steps towards the change that you're looking to execute, whether it's at the community level, whether it's at the city level or state, you know, you sort of start setting up those steps for success, but you do that with them from their perspective. So that's sort of the philosophy that we're really looking to bring to our advocacy work at CAE these days. Fantastic. And Jessica, let me give you a moment in case there's anything that you haven't yet touched upon that you wanted to make sure that you, that you include. Sure. I think one thing that I'm thinking a lot about right now is I'm reflecting on the landscape of funding for arts education, particularly in California, where I'm based and where my work is really focused. And I've noticed that funder support for arts education, especially um, in California, is very regionalized and it tends to be direct service focused. In reflecting on the last 10 years of work, it became really clear to us that we were one of the few, if not the only funder who was focused on advocacy for arts education at the state level. There were some funders working at the local level, and there still are, um, but there was um, a vacuum of partnership among funders at the, the state level that would help push some of those policy levers that, that unlock resources and will at the local level. So when you're working with a system that is as complex as public education in California, you really need to be thinking about how what's happening in Sacramento is impacting the counties and the districts and then the schools and then the kids in those schools. It's really hard to make change at an individual school if you're not also working at those at those higher levels. So um, 
we were working largely on our own until very recently the Stewart Foundation has come in and started doing some funding at the state level in arts education advocacy and I think there might be some interest out there and I'm really curious to learn what other funders are ready to play at the at the state level in arts education advocacy. Fantastic. And Sam, let me make sure I also open it up in case there's anything you've not been able to touch upon yet that you wanted to make sure that you included. Not more than just the fact that I think you hit it right on the, uh, on the head when you said that organizations and funders need to be very flexible and very nimble, uh, especially in these times with such a fast political change, especially when we're trying to change systemic and institutional challenges and organizing community-based organizations to do that. I think we need to think outside the box. We think go beyond uh, our usual partners and look at non-traditional partners and the role they play in the community and, and reach out to folks and physically reach out to folks and, and go there and but do so in a very meaningful and respectful way that encourages them to have a frank conversation about what their needs are, who they are, how they see themselves and what they aspire to do with their organizations and um, the changes they want to see affected within the community and then work with that and then start from that place and then work from there towards the organizational goals that you're trying to achieve in your coalition. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. We hope that this follow-up to our earlier podcasts has offered additional perspective and that you've gained a stronger sense of what foundations and funders can do to support arts advocacy efforts both generally and as these efforts relate to arts education. We'll continue to share information and case studies to help inform your work in this space. Thank you to Eddie, Jessica, and Sam for sharing your time, perspective, and expertise. And thanks to all who joined us. To find out more about what you can do to support arts advocacy efforts, continue to follow our Arts Advocacy Online Learning Series and follow Grantmakers in the Arts on Facebook and Twitter at GI Arts. Thanks so much for listening.